Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. Okay. So, I am excited with a holy excitement this morning. Um, to preach what we're going to preach this morning. J.C. Ryle talks of how many deep things are contained in just this one chapter of John. John chapter 6. And I'm going to tell you, I have to agree, this is absolutely, without doubt, 100% my favorite chapter of the Bible that I've ever preached. And I've preached Romans 8. And it's pretty awesome too. But John chapter 6, there's so much deep things on the doctrine of Christ and who Christ is and Him saying, I am this, I am this. And it, and it, it amazes me. And it also fills me with joy as we approach these deep doctrines to know that this is the Word of God and I get to preach it. In approaching any important doctrine in Scripture, I am very cautious Um and the reason why is because I want to be as full of grace as I can with truth. We want to tell the truth in, with, with gentleness and respect. And I have prayed this year, so get ready, for more boldness and courage in preaching and in life. Um, not for political fights or worldviews. Listen to me. Listen to me clearly. Hear me. This church isn't fighting for a Republican agenda or a Democrat agenda or a Libertarian agenda. We are, we, we are not in a political fight. We are in a fight for the soul of our country, not for getting our agendas passed with, with politicians. Our fight is for the gospel to be spread, for the visible church to be restored to the historical church. We're not for agendas. I want to stand for historic Christianity. If we disagree on some secondary doctrines, so be it. I want to stand for historic Christianity. And that's where my boldness comes from this year. And this text is one of the most challenged and misunderstood doctrines in Scripture. Period. Or none. I can't think of anyone that is more challenged and more uh, controversial to some and more misunderstood by many. And many avoid it. I can't. If I'm going to stay true to the text, I can't avoid it. As I was reading Sproul's commentary on this, this, this particular piece of uh, Scripture, I was challenged. He used to keep a note card on his desk when he was in seminary. And this is what it said. You are responsible to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like for it to teach. I have strived over the past two and a half to three years to be held captive to the God's Word, and as I've grown, now I see that I'm responsible to teach what this Bible says. And that's if 
all agree or all disagree, I'm held captive to one thing. What the Word of God says, what it, what it teaches is what I teach. So that's how I have to be. So buckle up. Now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God. John 6, 35-51 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whatever comes to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given to, that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has learned, heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. We can trust what it says, for it is historically accurate. It was written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. This is your word. We have no other revelation besides what you have said in your word. And we are thankful for what you have said. God, we ask that you would help us to stay true to what you say in your word, that we would teach it faithfully and responsibly, that your love and your mercy would come through throughout the word, that we would do it in a graceful manner, and that we would see the joy contained in all of the beautiful doctrines that you have written down in your word. Holy Spirit, illuminate the path that we may walk it, that we may grasp it, that we may retain it. And Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, let's begin to unpack this extremely important text. The people have just asked Jesus to give them the bread always. And we know from what we talked about last week, the bread that they wanted always was a physical bread. They wanted to never be hungry again. And that's cute. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. So, He has a pretty specific response here. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, in a hugely powerful statement, basically says way more than just, it's me. He's not just saying, look, I'm the bread I'm talking about. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that, but he says something so much more important. We talked about last week, these two words in Greek, ego, me, both of them meaning I am. So it almost seems if you were doing it literal, it would be like I am, I am. Well, we know what that means in the context of what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I am who I am, which is how God himself identified himself to Moses and said, tell them this, tell them I am who I am, and I am has sent me. So, Jesus is saying here in this verse, he says, I am who I am, the bread of life. I am God. I'm Yahweh Elohim. It's me that's the bread. And you need this bread more than you need earthly bread. I'm the one you need. I am God. Now, he says here, he says that they will not, not hunger and they'll never thirst. Now, he's not freeing them from the need for physical food or drink. He's not getting rid of physical hunger or thirst. And he's not give, doing what some in, 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 a, in, in the Word of Faith movement may say is, oh, he's saying that he's going to give us all this prosperity. He's not saying those things. That's not what he's talking about. Has he talked about that ever since we've been in John, these physical needs? No. He has always went to one point, to the spiritual, the spiritual point, the point of why he's there. What he's talking about here is freedom from death. Spiritual death. A life, listen to me, a life of perpetual hunger and thirst spiritually with only sin to turn to for comfort. Does that take you back in time? Do you remember your life before Christ? Is that not what it was? Constant hunger. I want more. Constant thirst. I'm not satisfied. Constant relying upon sin for comfort and never being comforted. Do you guys remember that? Because I do. What a powerful gift Jesus is offering them. But then he has to say the saddest thing in the world to them. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. These men who knew the Scriptures did not believe. How do we know they knew the Scriptures? Because it was a part of Jewish life to be raised knowing the Scriptures, to be going to synagogue, to be learning the Torah, to know these things. And yet God incarnate is in front of them and they won't believe. Or maybe more specifically, they can't believe. Notice that Jesus in what He says is not shaken or upset about this. You notice that? He just says plainly, you don't believe. And then, notice he doesn't beg them. 
He doesn't go into the second level of the altar call or the third level of the altar call. Or the Stand up. Don't look. Now look. Raise your hand. Walk the aisle. Do this. He doesn't go into these things. Notice he doesn't play on their emotions. Do you want to make Do you want to make me sad? He doesn't say that. You want to make me sad? Do you want me, You want to make me cry? You want to crucify me all over again? He doesn't say those things. Do you notice that? He's not shaken at all by their unbelief. It doesn't alter anything he's saying. And then he says why. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. First of all, let's do a little grammar. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Some would interpret that as things, gifts, all these things. But we have to look at the direct pronoun from that subject of all. The pronoun in the second part of the sentence says, whoever comes. The all is people. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. So are you ready to go with me on this journey? Because we're fixing to go. Some find this hard to swallow. But like Sproul, I am responsible to teach what the Bible teaches. I preach what the Bible says. I am held captive to it. And I will stand before God one day accountable for it. So I must preach the truth. All who are His will come to Him. Some call it predestination. We call it the doctrine of irresistible grace. Some use other terms for this drawing of the Father, the ones that have to come to Him. Some say, some call it the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Father, the regeneration of the heart, the gift of saving faith. All of these things do apply to that. But now we have to go and think about this. All. All. Does that leave anything out? It leaves not one out, does it? The all Jesus speaks of in this is a very specific group of people. A group mentioned 32 times in Scripture by a specific name. These people are mentioned by this name by some pretty solid folks, okay? Not the, not the secondary guys, not the guys you don't know like Amos and Habakkuk. No, these guys are mentioned by some pretty solid dudes. Moses mentions them. Isaiah mentions them. Paul mentions them. Peter mentions them. John mentions them. And guess who mentions them the, mentions them the most? Jesus Christ. The group is called the elect. This group, God sovereignly draws unto himself as a gift to Christ for the work of redemption. 
But Jesus doesn't just stop at the Father drawing all of them to Christ. He goes further into another doctrine that gets a lot of flack from, from one side of Christianity. Jesus says, I will never cast out. Who will he never cast out? His elect, his chosen people. He will never cast them out. He preserves them. God saves us and he preserves us. Some people call it the doctrine of once, served, once saved, always saved. I call it the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Some would wonder that God only chooses to save some. That's one of the biggest arguments against this doctrine is that God only chooses... Why would He only choose some? Many think that's not fair if He only chooses to save some and not others. First, we must understand the absolute treachery of the sin that we live in. It is literally a slap in the face to God. It is cosmic treason. It is going against God's will and God's plan for humanity for us to be in sin. Also, I would agree with Sproul. The wonder is that not that God only saves some. The wonder is that He saves any at all. As treacherous as our sin is. John, 1 John 3, 1, John talks about that, that, that wonder and that joy. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. What love is the gift that we've been given to be chosen of God? No sinful, dead in trespasses man is going to just decide to come to Jesus. Because dead men, listen to me clearly, when I heard Steve Lawson say this, it blew my socks off. Dead men don't decide. Why not? They're dead. They must be made alive. That is why the idea of giving our hearts to Christ or accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior are not biblical. We must see how the Bible says we are saved. How does the Bible say we are saved? Let's go to the other best chapter in the whole book in the whole Bible. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the golden chain. Notice, there seems to be no part in the chain for sinners or dead men to do. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, they get to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Nope, doesn't say that. It says those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. It is the work of God from start to finish. 
start to finish. Jesus is making a simple statement here to these men. He would say, he's saying this, if you were mine, you would believe. You aren't mine. Now, the detractors of this doctrine are the ones actually who take it too far sound the same on this point. What's the use of sharing the gospel then? Right? God's going to save all. He's predestined, right? That's what, that's what, that's what you hear from, from either the ones who hate the doctrine or those who take it way too far and become hyper. It's a simple answer. <laughs> Jesus is God, right? Right? So God would know who are His and who aren't His, right? And some would say, well, what about Judas? He let Judas be a part of the twelve. Let's, let's take, let's, let, let's think for just a second. Use our, uh, as we would say, if we were in first grade class, let's put on our thinking caps. Um, let's, let's not underestimate Christ. We would have to be delusional to think that Jesus didn't know Judas's heart. Right? Judas, this is tough too, Judas was a part of God's will for Christ. Scripture shows absolutely no surprise on Jesus' face when the son of perdition is revealed. In fact, he says, he's going to dip his bread in the, in the dish right after me. Jesus wasn't surprised by Judas. He knew Judas' heart. Now, if that is the way it goes, then we need to understand another thing. We are not God. We do not know who are His. It is our responsibility to preach the gospel to all. And God will do the drawing. This means that God has ordained. This is, this, is, this is the means that He has ordained from the foundation of the world for men to be saved that the gospel priest is the power of God unto salvation. That is how He has ordained it. Now listen as Jesus goes further in His explanation. Let's read verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. What is God's will? Man, is that a question we all ask ourselves, right? What is God's will? The work of redemption. That's what God's will is. All that are His elect, He will never lose. Period. All who receive the gift of saving faith will repent of their sins and believe in Christ 
and he will never lose them and he will raise them up on the last day. Period. Period. That's it. No doubt. And on that last day, that day is when Christ returns and our salvation is made complete. When the work is over and He makes all things new. Now, notice, how did the Jews handle this news? Verse 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They ignored all the stuff he, all the other stuff he said. They said, is, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Who does he think he is? Right? They completely miss and ignore the amazing doctrine that Christ is teaching and they go straight to his origins, straight to something physical and temporal. He's from Nazareth. He thinks he's better than us. And, and, and we know his mom and his sisters and his dad and stuff. It proves that their God is their belly. Their focus is their feelings. And we can't look down on these people. Because we have been right there. Four or five years ago, I actually taught the doctrine that they held to. That God was there to give us all the cool stuff we wanted and to make us feel good. And we were awesome. We were a picture on God's refrigerator and all this other junk. A doctrine that elevated us. A doctrine that viewed God as the cosmic Santa. A Savior that we're equal with. A religion that makes God a supporting actor in the wonderful drama of our awesome lives. We cannot fault these people for their sinfulness because we were just as sinful. And you may have heard it before, but we need to mean it. But for the grace of God, we'd have gone the same way. If it had not been for God's sovereign plan to save us, we'd be in the same position. Jesus knows that these men are not His, and, they are, and He is not shaken by what they're doing now either, by their grumbling and their complaining and their whining. He's not, he, he, he's not shaken by this. I love his answer, though. He gives a fourth grade sped teacher answer. You ready? Verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Basically, hey, cut that out. He tells them to quit their grumbling. And now we come to another essentially important statement from Jesus on salvation in its nature. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. This verse is so essential and important. There is one all-important word in this verse that we need to expound on. Are you ready? Can. That is the linchpin of this verse. It is the piece that holds this verse together and brings us the doctrine of the doctrines of grace. No one can come to me. This word is not the same as will come to me. Will kind of gives you the idea that we have to choose to, 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 to accept Jesus, right? Can is very different. Can, in this context, actually means ability. How do I know that? I looked it up in the Greek. It means to have the ability. No one is able to come to Christ unless he is drawn by the Father. Why? Because dead men can't do anything but be dead. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. We are dead in our sins and we love our sins. Look at what Paul says about it. Romans 3, 10-18 As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound like people with a God-shaped hole that are looking for God? No. It's very clear. He says, no one seeks for God. No. No. These aren't people with a God-shaped hole. And that is why they fall into false religions. And so easily believe their lies. Or, they will fall deeper and deeper into their own total depravity. Or, they will go to a church that teaches motivational tips and they'll show up about every four weeks or so. And they'll just try to be a good person. They aren't seeking a real, true, and holy God. The God that we seek in our depravity is a God that looks just like me and likes all the stuff I like. That's the God we seek in our depravity. The Father draws those who are appointed unto salvation. That sounds like an unusual phrase when it comes to salvation, right? In the modern church, we don't, we don't say appointed unto salvation. In the modern church, we say they raised their hand, they prayed a prayer, right? They walked the aisle, signed the card. 
and never show up again. It's not how they talked in Acts. Acts 13.48 Paul and, and, and the disciples had been reaching the Gentiles and the Gentiles were coming to Christ because they were being drawn by the Father. They were called from all eternity unto salvation. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we've seen the total depravity of man. And we see now unconditional election. Men who were Gentiles and sinners just like us were appointed unto salvation not because of how awesome they were or that God knew that they would pay attention to an altar call. No. He called them from all eternity. It wasn't unusual when you look at at it historically to say that somebody was appointed unto salvation or appointed unto eternal life. Let's look though at this word draw. It says that no one can come to the Father unless no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Now some would would try and translate this word with their own meaning and say that uh, it's uh, God's enticing them. He's showing them how awesome it is and maybe they'll just pay attention and He'll woo them to Himself. They say that to not accept Him will just break His heart. Don't make Jesus cry now. He's... He's calling to you. He's, he's enticing you. Well, this type of theology is actually completely opposite of what is taught here. Let's look at the actual Greek meaning of this word. Do you know what the Greek meaning of this word draw is? To drag or pull. That's not wooing and enticing. That's dragging or pulling. If we would look at our own salvation, I think we could see this. Because we had to be confronted with the hopeless state of our sin and come to a point of despair. And from that, God drags us into new life. It's His work. It's not my work. It's not my decision. It's not my heart. It's not me deciding, well, I just can't make Jesus cry again. That's not what it is. It is the Father bringing us to life from a point of utter despair and hopelessness. I love what Sproul, he had a conversation with a guy about it. And the guy's like, you know, that, dra that draw, it's more like a, a, a water in the bottom of a well. You have to draw it out with a bucket, right? He's like, okay, I agree with that. Because the father doesn't stand at the top of the well and go, please come up, water. Just come up, water. You don't want to make me cry. No. That water has to have a bucket and it has to be pulled up because it can't do anything on its own. 
Now, Jesus is going to give us some important reasons why this is true. Let's read verses 45 through 47. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. These verses speak of the teaching of the Father. Where are those teachings contained? In the Word of God. That's where they are. The law and the gospel are a key part of salvation because they are the means that the Father uses to draw us. An emotional reaction or fear may get you to raise a hand or repeat some prayer or walk an aisle or cry a lot, but that is not what we're talking about here. You must believe the gospel. Christ, John the Baptist, Peter, and Paul, we see in Scripture that they all taught that you must repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Let's break this down. The law points us to one thing, our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves. It shows us our need to repent. The law brings us to a point of saying, I must repent. And then the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished the work of redemption. He took your sin, your punishment, on the cross and rose again. The sacrifice was full. It was acceptable. It was exactly as it was to be. And now, through repentance and belief in Him, you can be redeemed and clothed in His righteousness. God draws us and saves us through the law and the gospel. And if He saves, we do truly have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we are His forever preserved in the hand of the One who created the universe. Let's finish out the verses. Verse 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give you, will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. He is the bread. Let's think about bread. Bread has always been a staple for meals. It has been something that is, is usually on the table. Whether you're from the south and it's sunbeam loaf bread, or you're from up north and it's some kind of fancy rolls or something. Bread is always a part of a meal, right? And it has sustained people for centuries. There's times of, of drought and, and awful things happening, and all they had to eat was bread. What about the, the Israelites in the wilderness? What sustained them? Bread. Christ is the sustainer. And He is life, it says. That's a recurring th theme throughout all of John. Jesus is life. He is the giver of life. And this is never more true than in how He saves us. So let's go to it. What is the absolute biblical explanation of what happens when we are called and justified? Ephesians 2, 1-10 And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, total depravity. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even we were dead when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to live together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that now, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to go somewhere else real quick. Sorry, Kendo, I'm not on the notes, so you don't have it. He's truly raised us to brand new life just as He ordained from the beginning. 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to start there. I'll stop when I want to stop. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. Before the foundation of the world, He knew us and He saved us. And I love Sproul's example of salvation because men try to use so many different illustrations to figure out how to explain things to people and many use the explanation that we who are in Christ are in a boat and we look out the side and we see men drowning all around us because they're struggling with their sin, right? That's not how it happens. What happens is we may be in the boat, but it's Christ who dives to the bottom of the ocean and finds the skeleton of the dead man and brings him up and by the time he's brought up, he is brand new and has, has life. He saves us as dead men. That's what He has done for us. What does this lead us to? First thing it should lead us to is a firm reliance on Jesus Christ, God the Son, as the sustainer of our lives. He is the bread of life 
Without Christ, we do not have life. Secondly, it should give us a desire to share the gospel with everyone. Why? Because we don't know who He's called, and we know that He called us. And if He called us, we would want others to be called as well. Thirdly, gives us an understanding of salvation being the responsibility of God, not us. I can't tell you how much a relief that is. As somebody who tries to share the gospel, to know that it doesn't lay on my shoulders whether they come to Christ or not. It's if the Father draws them, they will come. If He doesn't, they won't. That's it. Fourth, it should give us a firm assurance of our place as sons and daughters of God. Your place in heaven, your place as a son or daughter of God, your place in Christ is 100% set in stone, written by blood. Your name is in the book of life, and He's not going to take an eraser and erase your name. You are written from the foundation of the world. Fifth, It should give us a joyful trust in Scripture as the means to show us who God is and what He does. We don't just decide how God does things. He decides how He does things. And the beauty of it is He pretty much tells us in Scripture how most of it's done. The mysteries we don't know, we will one day know. But the important things, He tells us how He does it. But six, it gives us also a blessed hope that if He saved us, He will keep us, and then He will return to glorify us. The golden chain will not break. It's absolutely amazing that God has made any way to save us. The fact that He has appointed you unto eternal life should encourage you and strengthen you, and not only that, it should humble you that you would be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And He made the way before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word and what it has said to us. God, we thank You that we don't have to rely on man's knowledge and man's ideas, but God, Your Word tells us who You are and how You operate. And God, we can trust what it says over any other doctrine, any other thing that is said by men. It is Your revelation to us. If we want to hear you speak, we just need to read the Word of God. God, we trust you, and we thank you that you have saved us and keep us. God, I ask that you would help us as we go along in our lives to to make use of this knowledge and this hope that we have, that we would use it as a way to share and spread this hope to others, not as a means of arrogance or, 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 or... pride, but God is a means of saying He has saved us. He can save others. God, we're so thankful for that. Father, I pray for those who may have heard this and may be feeling the drawing. God, help them to repent and trust in Christ. That this word will be a rock in their shoe until they come for you in repentance and belief because of the utter despair of their sin. Sinner, we must repent and trust in Christ. He is our only hope. Without Him, we have no hope of salvation. We thank You, Lord, and we praise You for all that You have done for us. We give You honor and praise. In Christ's name.
Amen.